Hello, and welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club. This is episode 33, and I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor, author of this month's book, The Grieving Brain, The Surprising Science of How We Learn from Love and Loss. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Josh. Totally. And um, from your bio, I can see that you're an associate professor of psychology at the University of Arizona. Uh, That's right. Where you direct the grief, loss, and social stress glass, always have to have a good acronym, <laughs> uh, lab in investigating the effects of grief on the brain and the body. Um, and I know from reading the book, you also spent some time in the Netherlands studying grief as well. I did. That was a, a sabbatical, which was wonderfully productive. Yeah. Do people grieve out in the Netherlands as well? I didn't catch what you said, Josh. Sorry. Oh, oh, it's just a, a bad joke. I was just wondering if people grieve out in Europe oh, also. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, sadly, this is a whole universe of phenomenon. Totally. So do you want to, besides the little kind of potted bio I gave, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? So lots of really good stuff has been written about what grief feels like. But in my 20 years or so of research, I've been so curious about why grief feels the way it does, why it's so hard for us to understand that our loved one has died and, and what that means for our life. And how does the brain somehow mechanically encode all of that. And so I really wrote the book because I was trying to communicate what I think happens to people who might be able to apply it to their own lives. And this partly comes from an experience of my own, having lost my mom when I was 26. I think I have felt more comfortable maybe sitting with people who were grieving and, and so it felt natural to include their voices in my research. Totally. And so, yeah, the book is definitely read, um, written for, I think, a popular audience. You know, there's, there's lots of science in there, but it's pretty digestible. Yeah. Is your research, was it performed sort of because of your curiosity in the, in the questions themselves or with an aim to developing some kind of uh, tool or intervention or um, really just to sort of help inform people who are grieving uh, to help them maybe better understand it and maybe therefore kind of normalize some of the things they go through? That's a great question. I trained as a clinical psychologist, so I've been a cl licensed clinical psychologist uh, for a long time. But you're right that my research has been mostly basic science, so really trying to understand the nuts and bolts of what happens um, and, and why and how. And so the good news is that I think this has actually informed intervention. And I have had a couple of graduate students who've convinced me to do some intervention studies. So we have a few of those uh, that have come from the lab. Um, but for me, it really is trying to understand just the basic questions since in a way, we don't know a whole lot from a scientific lens. So that's interesting. So um, you trained as a as a psychologist, as a clinical psychologist. Um, at what point did you, or maybe the whole time you were thinking about the actual brains rather than the minds that 
seemed to emanate from them. But at what point did you sort of pivot to doing more sort of empirical fMRI, MRI kind of stuff? Well, I definitely had research as a part of my career, even from before starting graduate school. But I initially was focused very much on physiology of the body and bereavement. And it was actually after I had finished my dissertation that uh, one of the members of my dissertation committee, who was a psychiatrist, said, you know, we really should have these participants come back and and do a neuroimaging scan, a functional magnetic resonance imaging scan, um, to see how their brain is is reacting. And so I thought to myself, oh my goodness, I'm I'm already done. I you know this seems like way too much to bite off. Um, but I did, and I'm so glad I did. That turned out to be the very first uh, neuroscientific study of human grief. Yeah. For sure. And I know a lot of the details of that research uh, wound up here in the book. What would you say some of the some of the big takeaways were of applying neuroimaging technology to people who are uh, grieving? Originally, I think even the idea that we could take the perspective of the brain um, was just in and of itself kind of a novel idea that we actually asked participants to bring us a photograph of the person who had died, just like you would if you were explaining to anyone about someone who was important in your life, who was gone. And we were able to scan those photos and then show them to the person while they were lying in the scanner and contrast the brain activity uh, to the brain activity they had when looking at a stranger. So also looking at a human being, (laughs) but not a human being for whom they were grieving. And I think initially we were just struck by how complex grief is. So we had uh, brain regions that we know are important for memory, for example, and for taking another person's perspective and emotional pain and uh, all these different areas that sort of work together um, in this very complex way to generate the feeling of grief. Totally. So, I mean, as someone who doesn't have any assumptions about it, um, what was what was surprising about finding out that it was a complex phenomenon was the was the working hypothesis that it would be located in maybe some part of the brain that's associated with emotions rather than memory, or or why the surprise? The surprise, I think, was more about. Um, understanding we needed more specific questions. And so just asking, you know, what parts of the brain are important in feeling grief? This was a study done in in 2001. And at that time, I think many neuroscientists thought we would find one place in the brain that was related to a particular brain function, as though there'd be just one area that was responsible for the feelings of grief. And of course, we know that that's not true. Um, And so the neuroscience of grief has really grown up at the same time that neuroscience as a method has grown up. And it meant that I started to ask more specific questions like, um, do the brains of people who are more resilient after the death of a loved one, do they respond differently than people who are having a harder time adapting um, so that you could get more specific answers than just the complexity? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I, I understand that. You know, for the podcast, this book is definitely of a different sort, um, sort of in two ways. One, it's the first one we've had uh, about grieving. I, I have a, a family member who's, who's, you know, a bit ill in my family, and so it seemed relevant mm. um, for me. But also, you know, we never talk about brains on this podcast. We only mm-hmm. talk about minds. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I've sort of purposefully avoided talking about the actual meat, you know, between the ears, because in some ways there there feels like there's this great divide between, uh, you know, the machine and the hum of it, um, mm-hmm. I guess to use one metaphor. But how do you see, and, and I think that probably like drives some of the book, because I, I think it was, uh, well, I'll ask you if it was written it with grieving people in mind to offer them some help or solace, but how do those two concepts um, in your mind sort of relate to each other? I think there is this relationship between the mind and the brain, which to me doesn't sort of privilege one or the other. So I think we can learn about the mind from looking at the brain and learn about the brain from looking at the mind. And a lot of my work has really been around how do we cognitively and emotionally um, deal with this, you know, your one and only is is gone. And for me, I have to understand um, what are the psychological principles in the mind in order to ask good questions in the brain. And so for me, there is a lot that I think about in terms of this, this problem that the brain has to solve of, of where are they, you know, and, and how to deal with these intrusive thoughts that keep happening. So for me, it really is both the mind and the brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that was some of the most interesting stuff in the book is the conversation about where, where the loved ones have gone. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, we know maybe, I don't know, if, is it the prefrontal cortex or we know with our kind of most modern rational part of our minds that the person has, has died and is no longer here on earth, but there's all these habitual responses. Yeah. Um, I just, I know now my dog is at the vet today and mm. I, as I got off the couch, I like looked down to make sure I didn't step on her, but of yes. course she's not here you know? Yes. So, so as you emphasize in the book, they're, they're gone, but in, in, in whatever form thoughts live, you know, the neurochemical soup that, you know, <laughs> squashes around in our brain, in some sense, they're here, not, not in the most important sense, but in, in surely a relevant sense. Yeah, it's like, we actually sort of live in two worlds at the same time. There's the sort of external world that, that we have memories of, and we can verify, you know, by, by not stepping on our dog, for example. But we also live in a world that is the way we understand uh, and expect what's going to happen. And that happens in our, in our mind. And so while, just as you say, we can have memories that the person has died, um, at the same time, as soon as we have a loving bond with someone, it is encoded that they will be there forever, right? They'll be there for us forever. We'll be for, we'll be there for them forever. And you don't actually have to be in someone's presence to believe that, right? This is why we can, you know, kiss our spouse and go our separate ways to work every day, because we don't have to be physically present to know that they are out there in the world and they're going to come back to us. Well, in this very unusual 
thank goodness, circumstance where a loved one dies, that doesn't change that belief right away. Even when we have memories of the death, the belief persists that they're there. And so we do, we have all these responses like picking up the phone to call them or even just feeling like they're going to walk in the door again. And, and it really is that the, the mind and the brain can, can hold these two mutually exclusive pieces of information at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder how much of it, how much of the surprise of death and the um, sort of the shock of grief has is cultural mm. um, and more maybe like sort of uh, somewhat of a, a modern problem. Like when we lived in these, you know, bands of hunter gatherers and we kind of our loved ones were always, um, you know, within a few miles or tens of miles I don't know. I wonder if, if, you know, being able to get on an airplane and be a thousand miles from your loved one, but, but mm-hmm. still be in some sense alive or very much so alive, if that is part of the thing that our brains sort of have been caught up with. That is such an interesting question. And I think, you know, as with many things about modern civilization, uh, this was not necessarily the world we were evolved for. Um, but I will say that, you know, throughout history, right? I mean, in the Bible, we have stories of just being bereft and and disbelieving when um, a loved one has died, or the Taj Mahal, right? This great um, tribute to, uh, to a, a, a young woman, a wife who died. So I think there is some chance that it is more um, difficult for us, this, um, this changing our beliefs that they're gone. Um, but certainly I think because of the way attachment works, I think this probably has always been a bit of a problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's fair. Mm. Um, one distinction you make early on in the book is the difference between grief and grieving. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I originally found this very useful when I was thinking about how I would go about studying grief, um, but it then turned out to be really helpful for other people I described it to as well. So you can think of grief as that, you know, that emotional wave that knocks you off your feet, um, the sort of dissolving into tears or uh, the thoughts running through your head again and again and again. Grieving, on the other hand, is the way that grief changes over time without ever going away. So grief is just a natural reaction to being aware that we've had a loss. And that can be true six months, six years, six decades after the death of a loved one. You can come across something, you know, you 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 find there. I was um, uh, cleaning out a closet and I found a letter sweater right? Um, And just that moment, you're going to feel grief. It doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with your grieving just because you had a moment or a day of grief. So that grieving is really this change, even if it is simply that the feeling of grief becomes more familiar and you know you're going to get through this wave of grief. That's still a change over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for clearing that up. Um, yeah, one one thing you mentioned made me think of a question I'd written down about um, 
you know, misconceptions or quote unquote, like the normal way to grieve. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think what's helpful about reading a book with so much science in it is that it normalizes some of the uh, phenomena that a grieving person experiences um, so that maybe they don't take it so personally yeah. um, and understand it as, you know, sort of the price of having a brain that's experienced a loss. Yeah. Um, but what are some of the misconceptions about grief or grieving that um, maybe some of this basic science or just expertise can help to clear up? Well, I think one of the things that is still very prevalent in in our culture is the idea that there are these five stages of grieving. And, you know, I have an enormous amount of respect for Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who was a psychiatrist at a time when there weren't a lot of women in psychiatry. And she was doing, you know, the very best thing that scientists do when they're originally trying to understand something is she was describing. So she was having these conversations with people and describing their their grief in the form of their anger and their depression and their acceptance. But she published her um, her book on death and dying in 1969. And we can think about how far science has come since 1969. And now we have much larger and longer studies where we're really looking at grieving. In a way, she was looking at grief, right? She was looking at these individual conversations. But when we look at grieving, so how one person, um, what their experience is like across time, we see that there aren't these individual stages. You don't go through all of anger, and then you go through all of depression, and then you finally get to acceptance. So it's much more that we have a lot of emotions that go on. uh, And over time, we see this increase in acceptance and this decrease in yearning, but not in a linear way. So for example, we, we see in research as well as in our lived experience, that people have more grief at the holidays or at the anniversary of the death. And so it just isn't straightforward um, in a way that I think we we sort of hope that it will be. Um, and and so we, we don't think of it as uh, going through these five stages anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's amazing how certain of these psychological concepts really make it into the into the zeitgeist uh, sort of unquestioned um, and then come to dictate the way that we all think uh, things should go. Yeah, it's almost she was doing a description and we came to use it as a prescription, you know. Mm, mm, right, right. Like, oh, here comes the next stage. Exactly. And people really, it can be really damaging for people. So I've known people who've said to me, well, you know, my grieving, I I can't be done yet because I just haven't had anger. Mm. Not everybody has anger. But to live with this feeling that you're not done somehow is is awful. Yeah, it would would be painful to put this sort of obligation on an already pretty difficult experience. Um, so you mentioned something interesting that I know also appears in the book, um, intrusive thoughts. So, you know, this is primarily, or at least the name of it is, is an anxiety podcast. So intrusive thoughts, you know, is sort of the bread and butter <laughs> for people who have, uh, you know, an anxiety disorder, who ruminate a lot, who have OCD. So what did you find um, about intrusive thoughts related to 
the grieving process that, you know, might inform the way we understand uh, how the brain works? We know that intrusive thoughts increase after a very emotional event like the death of a loved one. So it's very much a part of the natural reaction that suddenly you're thinking about them or you're thinking about um, the death event all the time. Um, that's true for lots of kinds of uh, traumatic or potentially traumatic events. Um over time, those thoughts tend to happen less often and with less intensity. And that's just sort of the natural state of adapting. Um, but they can seem very worrying, especially at first, because they feel so uncontrollable. Uh, something I think is a little bit helpful to think about is we actually don't only have intrusive thoughts for big negative events. So, you know, if you have a wedding, you actually spend a lot of time thinking about that too. And it just intrudes on your thoughts while you're sitting at the stoplight or whatever you're doing. Um, it tends to be really important events that we have these intrusive thoughts about. I think that just is helpful because it makes people feel a little less crazy <laughs> that, that they're having these intrusive thoughts, but rather this is your brain trying to work out you know, what's happened and, and what this means now. But often we do get stuck in those intrusive thoughts. And with grief, this often takes the form of what I call the, the would have, should have, could have thoughts. So this is the, you know, if only I would have gotten them to the hospital sooner, mm -hmm. right? Or if only they you know, if only the doctor should have known to run this test or these sorts of thoughts. And, and the trouble with those thoughts, while they are, they are natural, is that all of them end in this virtual reality where my loved one lived, right? That's the outcome of each of these scenarios. And the trouble with it is that they didn't live. And so if you're spending a lot of time in these would have, could have, should have thoughts, you're actually not figuring out what it means to be in this very painful, but in this reality now and, and figuring out how to restore your life with the absence of this person. I think that's why I, I think that's why people think of them as getting stuck because you feel like you're not, um, you're not moving forward or you're not learning something new about how to create a life for yourself now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And that idea of getting stuck definitely resonates yeah. um, on this side of the fence. So um, one of the animals I think that was either present in your research or you mentioned in the book are, are voles, mm -hmm. uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Can you tell us what, what is a vole and, and what did you learn from them? <laughs> I, I do talk about them. This is mostly work by other researchers. Um, voles are these little tiny rodents that run around in North America. And what's fascinating about them is that prairie voles, the ones who live in the middle of the, uh, the U.S. and Canada, um, they mate for life. So they actually, once they have bonded to their mate, they prefer that vole over any other vole for the rest of their life. And they spend all this time huddling together, we call it. I guess because cuddling was too anthropomorphic. <laughs> um, and so 
what's interesting is to be able to look at this species who doesn't live very long um, and to see what what they experience when they have the death of a mate, which is actually pretty common um, since, you know, there are lots of predators out in the prairie. Um, and, and how do they manage that? And what's their stress response like? And um, what, what's happening in their brain that uh, enabled this bond in the first place? And then um, what happens after the death of, of a mate? Mm-hmm. And did it seem like the way that they um, sort of their minds or their brains deal with the departure of their mate? Did it seem to map onto any of the concepts we have for studying humans? Absolutely. So this is sort of the fascinating part. We see this stress physiology in the voles whose mates have been separated. Um, And that we see in human beings as well, right? So our stress hormones go up, our heart rate goes up, um, because it is very it, it is just a very stressful experience. But what's fascinating to me is that we can actually see in a very particular area of the brain called the nucleus accumbens, um, we can see that there are changes in the way the proteins are folded um, after this bonding happens. And then we see changes later on um, as they come to understand on some level, or at least uh, they, they may mate with another vole, with a, with a new vole. Um, it's just fascinating to think that it's because of this relationship that their brain is physically changed. And human beings are not so different in basic ways, although obviously we have two more pounds of brain. But in basic ways, I think it's fascinating to think that our brain was actually physically changed by being in this relationship and that that um, that's with us forever because we loved this person and they loved us. Totally. Yeah, I think that's a, a point rarely appreciated, which is that, you know, the, the way in which changes occur in our minds is by at, I guess, the chemical or the probably higher than the atomic level, the actual physical, you know, like mechanical changes yeah. occurring in our brain. I mean, that's the only way um, anything could happen, right? Because yeah. at the end of the day, it has to be stuff that's mm-hmm. changing, like physical stuff. Yeah, it's it's amazing. So we can see, for example, I, I hope this isn't too detailed for, for your listeners, but I doubt it. So, you know, DNA is our recipe book, right, for making all the proteins in our body. And it can have uh, pieces of our DNA can have a wrapper on them, sort of like the cookbook that, you know, still has the shrink wrap on it. And for voles, it isn't until they mate for the first time that that wrapper comes off and then these oxytocin receptors can be made by the brain, even though they always had the potential to be made. Now, because of this experience, these oxytocin receptors can be made, and that is what makes them prefer this vole over any other vole. Hmm. So it's it's almost like they didn't even know, they didn't even have like the concept of yeah of like love or companionship. Yeah. Um, it wasn't even like a possibility. They couldn't have like read a book about like vole love. Yes, exactly. They had to experience it. Yeah. Well, good for them going out and getting what they need. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So I know another part of the book tries to look at this question about the difference between yearning that takes place maybe after the death of a loved one or maybe after like a separation, like a romantic separation. Mm -hmm. And if that was the question that was uh, trying to be answered, what did you find there? Well, I often get the question, um, if grief is only about the death of a loved one. And I think it is possible that our brains evolved to deal with the death of a loved one because our close loved ones, our caregivers and our children and our mates, they are as important to us as food and water. They are really, they are critical for our survival. So I think that even though we may have evolved uh, the sort of neurobiology uh, in order to deal with the death of a loved one, whenever we have the loss of something important to us, that experience, it feels like grief because it, it you know, it's an analogy. It, it feels the same way as losing a loved one. And so I think of it this way, when you have a bond with someone, let's say I describe myself as a daughter, right? So that's a word that describes me, but that word actually implies two people, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And actually all our words are like this. So husband, implies another person and um, child implies another person, etc. parent. And so what we think is happening is that in the brain, there really is a representation of the we, right? Not just the you and the me, but there's a representation of the, of the we. And so when a loved one dies, we have to figure out, well, who am I then if there's no we? right? And, and because it is that loss of a piece of us, of, of a way that we functioned in the world, you can see how other types of losses feel that way too. So the loss of a job, for example, feels like a loss of, of a part of who I am, or the loss of health feels like, you know, I don't know how to function in the world now without you know, whatever it is, my energy level or my sight or, um, and so I think these other losses are very similar. And we saw this in, in the study we did about yearning. Um, it was not as intense for the separation due to a breakup or for homesickness, which was the other, um, form we were, we were looking at. They weren't as intense as the yearning for a deceased loved one, but you could use exactly the same descriptions regardless of which thing you were yearning for. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, something else that's mentioned in the book, um, that I found sort of compelling is this idea that some of the the spiritual practices that take place after the death of a loved one, like, you know, a funeral or, or a mm -hmm. wake or something similar could, can help the, like you make this contrast between um, deaths that occur in this uh, sort of rapid way without a lot of expectation and then deaths that are expected and maybe are met with like a body um, that's uh, visible and, and mm -hmm. you can see that, you know, life has sort of left it. Um, talk, can you talk a little bit about, you know, a mm -hmm. sort of expectations of, of death, um, being like imminent or, or being surprising and also how spiritual traditions can kind of help our brain along this process? Yeah. 
I think that no one really knows what grief is going to feel like until a loved one dies. But when we've had a long illness, all of our patterns are already disrupted, right? So you go from, you know, being two people living and working together, say, as, as um, you know, partners, spouses, um, and then one of you gets sick, already everything has changed. So it's not the same as it's going to be after the death, but your brain is aware, oh, so this is this is different now. Something is something is going on here. I can't use the same expectations that I used to. After a sudden death, it really is like the rug just got ripped out from under you. There's no way for the brain to have started to to update um, that this person isn't going to come home from work and this person isn't going to um, be able to you know have these long conversations with me um, and so a sudden death we know from the research predicts a, a longer and more intense grief um, and I think that really is about the not being able to believe that it's happened when it's really sudden Religious traditions, I think, have served a few different roles, honestly. One of them is while you're in this state of disbelief, which is very common initially when someone has died, if you are at, you know, the funeral, the wake, the memorial, the graveside, all of these people who know and love the person who died sort of come together in this very unusual moment. And, you know, they put on particular clothing and, and we do particular things with candles and, and ashes and so forth. And it's almost giving us the sense that everyone agrees that this person has died which sounds kind of silly, but if you're in this moment of disbelief, there is a way in which sort of referring to the people around us kind of helps our our mind to know that this has really happened. I think it serves a lot of functions. Another one that I think is really important is for people who have been a part of a long religious tradition, it often connects you to say these particular prayers or do these particular actions, it connects you to a whole long line of people who have done this before you, who have also felt intense and unbearable grief. And it connects you with them while you can't believe that your life will ever be meaningful again, knowing that many of them have adapted and so I think there's a way in which that sense of support, both from the friends and family around you in the moment, but also just connecting back to the common humanity of, you know, you walk through a door and suddenly you're actually with a whole lot of people who, uh, who have been through unbearable loss. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So I'm curious, um, you know, what what's next? What are some of the still open questions around the way the brain um, deals with and accommodates loss. You know, what, what's next on the list of research questions that you or your team or others in the field will be focusing on? I think one of the first questions 
gets back to this distinction between grief and grieving. So we have a number, quite a number of studies of grief now, um, fMRI studies, but we have almost no studies of grieving where you would do a scan on the same person, say two or three times across a year or two. And so we know very little about how the brain changes as it is trying to update and understand and restore a meaningful life. I think that will be um, very interesting to see um, how, how that process works. You know, what happens in the nucleus accumbens when, uh, when, when it's been um, uh, six months versus a year? Um, I think there are other just such important questions as well. Things like, what about people who seem to really kind of shift their life? We call this sometimes post-traumatic growth, so that the death of a loved one for some people can really shift how they feel about um, religion or spirituality, but also um, things like you know, feeling you need to seize the day, right? You sort of come in contact with mortality and you realize, oh gosh, my life is so precious. I need to live it in a particular way. Or um, gosh, I feel so much more connected to people now who've been so good to me that I just couldn't have even imagined. Um, so these types of post-traumatic growth, I think it's very curious to wonder what might be going on differently in the brain of that person um, than either those of us who are sort of having the more typical grief experience, um, which is resilient, but not necessarily uh, uh, very increasing in, in meaning, um, or comparing also to people who are just really not adapting very well. Yeah. And you mentioned this brain structure a couple of times. So I want to just ask a little bit more about it. The mm -hmm. Nucleus incumbens, if I'm saying <laughs> that correctly? It's uh, accumbens, like A-C-C, accumbens, yeah. Uh, where would I, if I opened up my head right now, where would I find <laughs> that guy? It's very deep in the middle, middle, middle. <laughs> it's uh, in something we call the basal ganglia. Some people may have heard of that because... Um, Parkinson's disease also happens in the basal ganglia, but that's really just the neighborhood. It's not the same area. Um, and it really is important in what we call reward learning. So essentially, it's it sort of enables us to want things and to like them. <laughs> so I think about you know when you're when you're waiting for Christmas and you're imagining that present and and what could it be inside and really wanting to open it. That's your nucleus accumbens that's that's enabling that to happen. And is that um, is it not the same region responsible for dislike? It's not, interestingly. So it really is about motivating us to seek this thing out, right? So the reason that it's important in human relationships, and we have uh, brain images, uh, brain, uh, brain imaging studies where we see this area in fathers looking at their kindergartners and uh, mothers looking at their baby and romantic partners looking at each other. And the reason it's important is it really does motivate us. It motivates us to spend time with them and to seek them out. And dislike is a, is a different thing, um, but this is really about motivating us. And the, the problem is that after the death of a loved one, some research that I did showed that 
when we continue to have very high levels of yearning for the person, even though that's not possible to spend time with them anymore, that we continue to see activation in this area. This yearning is a motivation. It's just that it's a motivation we can't fulfill anymore. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, I hadn't heard it mentioned before, but it seems important. Yeah. For people who, you know, are experiencing a loss or are planning to experience a loss, do, do you have a, a, a message for them or, or some mm -hmm. tip? Would you say that this book would be a good way for them to, you know, at least get a little bit more knowledge about what what lies ahead for them in their brains or, or to offer them some comfort? Yeah. In the book, especially the last hundred pages, I talk a lot about how we need a whole toolkit of, of coping strategies, you know, so we can use different ones at different times and how it helps to be flexible and compassionate with yourself because grief really is a natural reaction. There's no, you know, the big book of grieving rules. Um, and so people get hung up on, am I grieving too much? Am I grieving too little? Is my grief normal? And I will say, you know, almost all the time, it's totally normal. Um, so that's probably my, my biggest um, thought. I think the book can also be incredibly helpful if you know someone who is grieving, and especially if you know someone who's been grieving for a long time, whatever feels like a long time to you, um, to kind of understand what, may, what might be going on for this person. Um, because I think if we haven't had the experience um, or haven't had it in the same way, it can feel very foreign to, to really understand what's going on for this person. And it can make them feel very lonely that people don't understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So for a, a partner or a friend of yeah. someone. So you said something that sort of piqued my interest, and I'm, I'm guessing it, it would have piqued the listener's interest <laughs> also. But you said that, um, you know, a lot of what people experience in their grief process um, is normal and okay, but sort of that suggests that there are some behaviors that maybe we should watch out for or, or, mm. or be cautious of, or if they arise, um, maybe that's an indication that we should seek out some kind of help in, mm. in, in some way. Can you yeah. I think the way I think about this is, especially in acute grief where everything just feels bizarre and off its rocker, um, a sign of mental health is being able to have these waves of grief and also having moments where you're not in the middle of a wave of grief. So, you know, you can tell really funny stories about the person who's died, or you can recall how proud you feel of the way that you took care of them, or um, you can even just do everyday normal things like you manage to get your teeth brushed. Um, these are signs of this flexibility of being able to go into grief and out of it um, in, a, in an oscillating kind of way. And so if people are able to do that, I tend to worry a lot less about them. Um, and that's especially in that very acute stage. It's okay not to be crying all the time. It's okay to, you know, get lost in a movie or, um, you know, play video games or whatever you do in, in normal life. Um, where I see people get stuck is often later on where 
they feel like they're just going through the motions of life. Um, so even if they're sort of doing things, none of it has any any point to them. These people sometimes also experience um, a lot of disbelief that persists. So not being able to believe that the person is gone, but now months and months and months after the death, or even more than a year after the death. Um, so these are maybe more typical earlier on, but for many people kind of resolve naturally or resolve with the help of, of friends and, and family. Um, the time that I think it is most important to seek out help is when you're really trying to just avoid life at all. And what I mean by that is if you feel that the present is so painful that you need to sort of self-medicate with alcohol or drugs, or you have the feeling that um, not only people will sometimes express that they want to die in order to be with the person uh, who's who's passed on, um, but if you were to make any intention toward that, make any plans toward that, that is definitely a sign that you need more than just friends and family around you. That it's important to get help because there are ways to cope with the really painful present moment. Um, and we don't want, you know, short-term solutions to get in the way of a longer-term restoration of a meaningful life. Sure. I think that's a, that's a good bit of wisdom there mm. uh, for, for any folks that that might apply to. Um, well, Dr. O'Connor, this has been really informative. Um, is there anything we've left out that you think might be important to mention? I guess the last thing I've kind of danced around it, but maybe haven't said explicitly is there really is no over, <laughs> you know, people want to say, well, when is it over? Um, either because they are experiencing grief themselves or they're watching someone else. And I sometimes, you know, I try to say, uh, like I would say, you know, when did you get over your wedding day? Right. Like, that's not a mm. question that really makes sense. This is an event that changes your life and changes how you are in the world. It's just that it can also be that you can carry the absence of your loved one with you and still find a way to have a meaningful life. Totally. Yeah. Thanks for adding that in mm. there. Um, well, yeah, again, Dr. O'Connor, thank you so much for writing the book and spending some time with us um today and uh yeah i look forward to talking with you again um perhaps when uh part two comes out <laughs> thank you so much for bringing this important conversation to people